Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox, on the web at maineboats.com. The 12th Annual Homelessness Marathon, a national town hall discussion on poverty and homelessness in America. What, what we got here is a problem of human beings being treated like refuse, and I, I think the only solution is some sort of moral awakening. We're in danger as long as we continue to paint homeless people in this country as somehow other. I think it would be pretty startling for the majority of the public to know that within about two blocks from the White House itself, there are homeless people sleeping in parks. The 12th Annual Homelessness Marathon will be the first national examination of the poverty and not just the debris left in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. It's a matter of life and death for the people who are homeless. I'm not giving up and I don't want nobody to feel sorry for me. Live from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, the other ground zero, the Homelessness Marathon on this radio station. The Homelessness Marathon, February 23rd, starting at 7 p.m., straight through till 9 a.m. Tuesday morning, February 24th. This hour of Boat Talk is made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for over 20 years. Near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with hosts Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague is up next. Good morning, good morning. That's our friend Schooner Fair piping in boat talk here on Community Radio WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9 and 102.9 in Bangor. Boat talk is a... Uh, a call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. We cover all kinds of subjects that range from all wet to totally abysmal, and you're certainly welcome to call, too. 1-800-625-9378 is the number. Oh, no, it's... Yeah. Call, yeah. Toll-free number for studio is one 625 Seven eight. I was reading it right, just saying it wrong. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Boat talk, uh, call in show, where you know we'll pretty much interrupt whatever we're talking about to see what's interesting to you when you come by to kick the keel. It's the middle of February, and this was the original boat talk nightmare when they asked us to do boat talk all year long. It's like, well, what are we talk about in the middle of February. <laughs> My God. And, uh, you know, we'll think of something. It was never a problem. Probably never will be. No, Botox and embarrassment of riches. But uh, this morning would be a great morning to talk to you because we have not overscheduled any guests or such. we got a, a couple of things to talk about here, news items, some stuff about the Coast Guard and uh, whatnot. But, uh, for instance, we ended up last month uh, answering a question with our uh, radio friend Doug Day, musician from over to Swans Island about uh, revarnishing his boat, for instance. Uh, you know, we can, uh, we can uh, talk to and answer a lot of questions, or, or we can talk to people. Who knows what, what kind of answers we really have. But We are getting into the season where people are starting to think about their boats again and things that they want to do before they put it in the water. Coming. Uh, some people are out in the water. We'll get to that, too. There's, uh, you know, more people getting in trouble out on the water here. Uh, last month we also talked about pirates, and piracy is an interesting international problem nowadays. Um, again, I read a book, uh, William Languish, The Outlaw Sea, and his point is that uh, the sea is the biggest area on earth, and it's not only ungoverned, it's ungovernable. And the uh, maritime uh, laws that exist, the conventions that exist, are uh, kind of comforting facades, according to William Languish. Again, The Outlaw Sea, a very excellent book. Talks about piracy, uh, ship breaking, and uh, terrorism. Uh, 
was also in there as well. So anyway, um, here we have this piracy issue nowadays, and again, it's not like the old days where the the Barbary pirates on the shore of Tripoli would mess with American vessels, and we'd you know send old Ironsides over there or something, mm-hmm. you know, and smuck them on the head and string them up. It's not like that anymore. Uh, now, um, you know, everybody is flying flags of convenience, and what does Liberia care about what happens on one of their boats? Strictly speaking, it's kind of a paperwork registry kind of thing more than a, you know, a national institution when you get right down to it. No, it's just a loss of uh, income for them. Yeah. Now, uh, let's also imagine India, for instance, uh, captured some pirates, took them back to India, put them in jail. This was nothing that happened in India. Now they're responsible for these people. They got to feed them. They got to try them. Uh, you know, they got to keep them. Um, like I said, now they're responsible for these people where it didn't happen in Indian waters, uh, just for example. And, and some of these people ended up uh, being let go. This was, again, from the book The Outlaw Sea, William Languish. Um, just uh, last week, pirates attack and uh, hijack a German LNG tanker. Liquefied natural, natural gas, uh, of course. Boy. One of the controversies about that is uh, what would happen if that blew up? Right. Yeah. So anyway, here's the uh, punchline to that. This uh, German tanker was uh, traveling around the Horn of Africa in the shipping lane that's being protected by an international force. Oh, boy. That worked well, didn't it? Uh, They were attacked by uh, seven pirates who boarded the thing early in the morning. They put out a distress call. Pirates took over the ship. The master was allowed to uh, briefly communicate with the uh, home office. Said the crew of 12 Filipinos and one Indonesian were safe. And uh, no ransom demand has been made. Ships and helicopters were dispatched. They didn't get there in time. And afterwards, what did they or could they do? That's an interesting problem. Piracy, and it's not going away. That's one form of piracy. And again, Somalia is a hot spot now. Ordinarily, the hotspot for piracy is more towards Indonesian waters and can involve uh, commercial ships and also yachts right. are attacked on a semi-regular basis. Right, yeah, because yachts don't go very fast, and so the powerboats yep. can be easy to run them down. And you're obviously uh, thinking that, you know, there might be something that they've got more than you've got if they're yachting and you're not. Yep. So, um, yeah, piracy, very interesting anyway. Uh, Another interesting aspect of this piracy increase, too, is they're also counting, at least in the uh, International Chamber of Commerce count of piracy, they're counting um, ships that are at anchor that are uh, taken over, mostly just to ransack or whatever they can, the stores on board the boat, and then make off of that. They're counting that as piracy, too, which in my book really isn't. Well, I don't know. you got people you don't like on your boat taking stuff that doesn't belong to them, you know. Right. Got to call it something. <laughs> but first of all, it's it's in uh, a, a country's um, territory when they're at anchor, I would assume. Oh, I see what you mean. And uh, second of all, it's, uh, to me, piracy has always got to be on the high sea. Yeah. No, uh, lots of forms of piracy, I guess, is the, uh, um, is the thing there. And, uh, you know, it's not like the old days. And, and uh Oh, who was it? Little Wayne the other day, the rapper who uh, just won some Grammys. He was interviewed by Katie, Katie Couric the other day and says, Miss Katie, I'm a gangster. And she says, what's that mean? He says, I do whatever I want whenever I want to. That's kind of the definition of a pirate, isn't mm-hmm. it? And, yeah. and who can get away with that nowadays? Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to really try? Well, speaking of getting away, here's an interesting uh, little item from the, from the uh, Associated Press. There's a little controversy on Saddam Hussein's luxury yacht. It's it's now in Greece. It's been seized by French officials. There is some controversy about who owns it. It was uh, in uh, France and Greece for maintenance. It's a 269-foot boat with swimming pools, uh, secret escape passages, and a rocket launching system. And after the Iraqi government sorts this out, it says that they are... Uh, you know, receiving offers on it, and they haven't received a good one yet, but they uh, are hoping for something in the $35 million range. Um, Iraq, of course, uh, claiming ownership of Saddam's old boat, mm-hmm. uh, secret passages, <laughs> and rocket launching systems. Uh, never worked on one of those in the boatyard, did No, you? no, I've never installed any <laughs> rocket launchers. <laughs> Oh, what else do we have here? Well, speaking of the boatyard, uh, this is kind of interesting. The Maine Marine Patrol 
has a bunch of boats up and down the coast. Uh, Guardian would be one of them. Uh, this one here we're talking about... Uh, I worked, uh, vigilant. I worked, I worked on one that was made by Jack Williams quite a few years ago. Huh? Yeah, um, forty-six footers. Uh, uh, oh, jeez, uh, oh, I think of the. Uh, it's a it's a beamy, uh, big old uh, Maine lobster boat mm. type. Uh, can't think of uh, what kind of hulls they are, but anyway, uh, here's the thing: their uh, uh, forty-six foot foot boat, which was leaking, was trucked from Kennebunk to a state repair yard in Rockland. Um, to avoid the estimated $16,000 cost of using a private boatyard. They say they expect to save money and get the job done faster at the state facility. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a learning curve there. Now, maybe they do have some people who know what they're doing, but uh, somehow you just jump into the middle of a project like that. Lots of times you end up doing more damage than good. Kind of reminds me of my uh, little take on show business. You know, everybody thinks they can put on a show. It's like the old Mickey Rooney, uh, uh, Judy Garland movies. Hey, kids, let's put on a show. You know, what could be easier than that? And, uh, you know, let's play Boatyard. Mm-hmm. What could be easier than that? Uh, it's just a, another one of my favorite boat jokes, Alan. It's just a boat. It's only that long and that wide. How much trouble could it be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and uh, you think it's easy to be a Boatyard, you start one. So anyway, uh and good luck to the state on that. You know, uh, that's that's uh, got several sides. Well, uh, it's saving our money, so I can't really complain too much. Well, about but that. it's uh, taking away from the boatyard. Things a little slow down at the boatyard this winter in, in a lot of places. Yes, sure it is. Are. So, uh, you know, taking away from the boatyard too. But on the other hand, uh, those are tax dollars. And, um, you know, maybe they will end up saving money. Maybe they won't. We certainly hope so. Oh, here's another governmental kind of thing. The Eastport Port Authority reports that they just had another record year, and uh, they increased their exports by 8,000 metric tons last year, uh, put out uh, almost 400,000 metric tons of cargo over its piers. This is uh, the seventh year of growth in the last eight years, and they say it's putting them in good position to uh, partner up with things like tidal and uh, wind energy possibilities that are also happening down the Eastport area. A um, little controversy around the neighborhood lately about the port at Sears Island, port possibilities on Sears Island. Um, the thing about Eastport that is sort of mentioned here, it says that we need to uh, thank those at Domtar Federal Marine Terminals, the Northeastern uh, Longshoremen's Association, and the Harbor Pilots, and also independent truckers. Um, the only business they mentioned was Domtar. Mm. No, the school there. I think that's probably the school. It's probably one of their biggest businesses now on the, the island. Oh, we're talking Eastport. I mean, for the uh, customers for the port of Eastport. Oh, oh yeah. It's sort of a uh, it's sort of dependent um, quite a bit on on Domtar at the present time, mm. and uh, you know it sort of only handles one one type of thing. It's uh, all outgoing, um, in general, and uh, the. Uh, thing about Eastport as well is they have no real transportation links to anywhere. They're on an, what's essentially an island connected to the main, mainland with a causeway, which is uh, not a very good road, what, Route 192 or something? Yeah, and uh, so anyway, the possibilities of rail and, and uh, super highways are, you know. But while we're still on the subject of Eastport, too, um, there was an interesting article in the, uh, the underwriter for this show whose name we can't mention um, but it would rhyme with main <laughs> floats, <laughs> bones, and neighbors. Um, at the very last page of that book, there's an article by Ben Ellison, WERU, uh, occasional programmer, too, on Eastport. A nice little map of the island. Um, what's his, uh, the name of his column, uh, Travels with Gizmo? Gizmo, isn't right. It? Yeah, yeah, he's got a little motorboat, and he yeah. trailers it around, and he takes rides and then uh, describes them to you yeah. with a little chart and where you can get a lobster roll and stuff. Right, and yeah, I like the uh, the uh, culinary parts of his his tours, too. So he... It's one of my favorite parts of the uh, Main Boats and Harbors magazine, besides the Boatyard Dog, I really enjoy, too. Just yeah. a classic idea. Hey, we're doing boat talk this morning. We'll interrupt ourselves about any time talk to you. It is a uh, call-in show. It's supposed to be a two-sided affair. one 625 A lot of uh, controversy about the whole digital thing lately, and maybe we ain't all smart enough to tune our uh, television channels on, even given all the... 
publicity that's been given to the TV. It's still yeah. confusion and delay. Been given a reprieve, actually, on yes. the TV. Well, there is no reprieve for EPIRBs. Um, EPIRBs went obsolete February 1st. Yeah, emergency position indicating radio beacon. Yeah, and basically if you wanted to go anywhere, a uh, fisherman, uh, yachters going offshore, you uh, really had to have an EPIRB beacon. If you get in trouble, for instance, if your boat sinks, the thing is supposed to pop up to the top of the water like a cork and uh, start transmitting to a satellite, uh, which will alert a government receiver. They will send people out and start looking for you. you know, they used to transmit to any uh, uh, aircraft that was passing overhead, too. Now, is that just satellite only now with a digital? Uh, I think it. Uh, I think that's much more likely, yes. The... Um, um, it's interesting how they go about selling the new digital thing. We'll all be so much better off. There'll be more bandwidth and everything. And they're doing that with the, uh, with the EPIRBs as well. They point out that the EPIRBs had a high rate of false alarms. Um, not only EPIRBs, but other devices could trigger uh, the emergency uh, response. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, and such as... Uh, Your radio show? Yeah. Automatic <laughs> teller machines, microwaves, stadium scoreboards, and uh, other electronic devices so that, for instance, you get a signal and send somebody out to look. And again, it does not pinpoint the area. It just gives you a general area with the old signal. And uh, it could have been, as they say the microwave in the seashore restaurant heating up some chowder. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but anyway, somebody mm -hmm. is uh, now looking for something that's not there. The new ones, they say, will focus the uh, search from like 500 square miles down to 25 square miles, and if it has a GPS chip in it to 100 yards, the uh, thing goes off, you know right where they are. They're going to be registered uh, and have much more information with the signal that will uh, allow them to... You know, they get a signal from the Allen Sprague uh, beacon. They will call you up first off, get you or, or the wife or somebody, and start asking questions. And it's supposed to uh, make things all all better for us. But all those EPIRBs have to be thrown away. New mounts have to be made for the new ones. And, uh, you know. That's what keeps the economy rolling, isn't it? Yeah, they're doing a piece about uh, records the other day on, on the television and pointing out that CDs are about to be obsolete, too, and I've just started to accept them. Oh, no. <laughs> huh. All right. Oh, dear. Right. Yeah. Um, I talked with Skip Strong last Saturday. Skip Strong is one of my all-time favorite guests we ever had here. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a oil tanker captain back in the what early mid-'90s, and... Uh, he was coming around Florida with a load of oil and into a tropical storm and got a mayday from a tug and a barge. In, in, uh, well, they were, they were in a tropical storm. Their engine was on fire, and they had a couple other problems, too. He ended up uh, rescuing the tug and the barge with his loaded oil tanker less than a mile from a big rock from a big, big shoal that area. was much less deep than he was. And, uh, you know, with 10 million gallons of number six oil on, as Skip said uh, so famously, um, you know, if I'd gone up on Bethel Shoal, Joseph Hazelton and the Exxon Valdez would have been a footnote on my name, he mm -hmm. says. But he successfully rescued this uh, tug and, and barge and uh, won the largest marine salvage award in history. Because what was on the barge? Yeah, it turns out the barge is pulling a space shuttle um, recycling its booster parts there. Yep, and you just don't run into a lot of those, and it was kind of valuable. No, yeah, they're a pretty, pretty expensive little item. Yeah, so anyway, you were talking to Skip. What's what's up? I asked him how the book was doing. He said it's in its third printing now. Wow. Yep, doing well. And I said, well, are you going to make a movie? And he says, well, I was talking to my next-door neighbor who happened to be the fellow who invented the uh, space shuttle glove in South Coast. I remember hearing about that oh, a yeah. year or so ago. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all Skip's connected, neighbor. right. Yeah, and it uh, turns out that some um, TV uh, documentary film group is up talking with the space glove guy, guy about uh, making a sort of documentary on, on his invention and how it's going to be used and how he came about it and all sort. Of, and they went next door and talked with Skip, too, because the neighbor told him, says, well, you know, Skip's got a pretty good story, too. And they talked with Skip and found out his story. And he says, well, you know, when we're done with this, we're going to come back and talk with you. Could so, make a good little piece for the History Channel or I some such, be, yeah. Discovery Channel. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. Yeah. And uh, we're going to have to get a recreated film and maybe steal scenes from the perfect storm and stuff, you know. Uh, but, yeah, pretty cool. Skip yeah. Strong, uh, 
He was an oil, young, very, very young oil tanker captain. He was in his early 30s. It was his first command. And my other favorite thing he said was that with more experience, he probably never would have tried it. Well, you go back to the uh, the, the laws of the ocean, as you were saying earlier, unmanageable. You know, that's, uh, that's by... by ethical law, you are supposed to respond to a mayday. Nobody else is around. Uh, you know, you need yeah. to help those people because right. you could be in the same position. But on the other hand, who knows if you really heard that radio message or not. You know, there's some, some uh, gray area there. Well, and you have to gauge the risk, too. You can't make things worse by trying to help somebody. And, yeah. and spilling 100 million gallons of number six oil on Florida Beach is, you know, arguably kind of a problem. That would be it, yeah. Yeah. Skip Strong. That was back in uh, September of '03. We did that one. Okay, uh, I, I was trying to remember the date when I was talking with Skip because I said you might be able to go back to uh, weru.org archives and listen to that. Yeah. Um, no, that was September '03. Probably before we started archiving them. Aren't we getting old? We've been we've been doing what doing boat talk for about ten years now. We kind of inherited it. Yeah. And uh, you know we by default it. actually. Well. They asked us one time if we'd like to do it, and we did, and that went well, and here we are. So, um, And it is a call-in show. We'd love to talk to you this morning. 1-866-625-9378 is the number. Amy is a engineer in this morning. She'll put you right uh, on. We don't, uh, you know, we don't screen people and decide we don't want to talk to anybody. So we'll talk to you whenever you come along. A couple people ended up in the water recently. Um, this one was really interesting. A uh, 21-year-old Rumford man was treated for hypothermia after uh, riding a snowmobile into the Androscoggin River uh, at night uh, a week or two ago. And here's the remarkable part. He spent an hour in the water with his arms up on some ice. Man, you're probably wearing a snowmobile suit, but still, they're not <clears throat> yeah. really waterproof. Yeah, and, no, that boy. had to be a wetsuit, literally. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I made the little pun, but anyway. Uh, it goes back to, the remember the guys that drowned in the canoe, and it was the heavyweight guy who was actually able to survive the hypothermia? The yeah, and I believe he didn't have a uh, life preserver either, and he was working harder than the other fellow. this guy was on the uh, corpulent well, side, that's too. hard to say. Uh, you know, it's hard to say why he survived, but the fact is that uh, he was able to uh, get himself up on the ice and prop his arms up and keep himself afloat for about an hour. I, I, I would imagine he was pretty much frozen to the thing mm. when they got there. Yeah. And uh, I guess the um, I guess the lesson would be don't give up. You know, an hour, uh, you wouldn't consider that that would be ordinarily possible. Mm-hmm. Um, by rights, he should not have survived for an hour. Yeah, well, when you get that cold, your muscles just don't function. You, yeah. you might not want to give up, but you're... you're body is not working yeah do not give up anyway and uh staying afloat was the big thing uh, again he was uh, using ice as flotation with some uh obvious drawbacks the the fact that he was probably frozen right to his life preserver so to speak somebody's on the phone alan oh good yeah That's good morning fun. gentlemen how are you doing good good morning who are we speaking with this morning uh this is jim um over in prospect hi jim um i had uh well i'm an occasional sailor i've crewed a few times with folks and so I'm no expert or anything, but um, I had a couple questions. Um, one, I understand there's a big whirlpool up in, is it near Eastport or yeah. something like Old that? Sal. Old Sal, yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering if you might comment a little bit on that. I mean, when people talk about it, they, I think, I don't know if they exaggerate or what, they talk about, you know, sucking small vessels down or something like that. <laughs> I don't believe uh, that would, that would uh, really happen. I suppose you could get capsized, but... Um, it's like the guidebook, Jim. You uh, read the you know the cruising guides, uh-huh. and they they warn you about everything. And every it sounds perilous. And uh, I remember reading an, an article in a uh, sailing magazine of these people that boy Maine was their dream, and they finally got to Maine, but they didn't dare to go past Casco Passage. Somehow was the they they didn't think they could navigate Casco Passage, which is just uh, between the end of MDI and right. the end of Deer Isle, you know. And mm-hmm. when they finally got there, they found out it really wasn't that hard, you know. And uh, Old Sal, um, you know, gets written up pretty big. It, it is quite a, a remarkable natural feature. I used to take a, a boat I captained to Eastport every summer, and uh, you go right by it, coming around the end of Campobello and down the fairway to Eastport there. And it is a, a very, very large... Whirlpool. I talked to a local friend down in Eastport, and he says that um, you can get caught in the current of the thing. 
mm-hmm. and your vessel is no longer doing what you would hope it would do. But, you know, to suck you down into the uh, little drain hole there. Into the black hole. <laughs> yeah, not, not exactly what's going on well, there. I was pretty certain that was a bit of an exaggeration, and, and yet it must be some, you know, considered a hazard, I would imagine, if you're going through the area. Oh, geez, and, and uh, like I say, it's, it's a uh, current, and that's, boy, this current scares me, honestly. Well, not scared by big waves, wind, you know, a little bit. Current scares the crap out of me, honestly. And because uh, it's stronger than, than uh, you know, about anything you've got going. And so in a small boat, uh, again, you could get possibly capsized. Uh, current with an opposing wind gets real choppy, for instance. Sure. Yeah. And would, is that anywhere near, I, and I'm not well informed about this, but is that anywhere near where there was some talk, I guess, for a while about, CNG tankers or something going through that area, they wanted to build a, a storage facility or something? The uh, tankers would have to go by the old sow to get to Robinston uh, uh, area. As you're coming around the end of Campobello, you're facing, um, you have to go all the way around Campobello Island to come into Eastport. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're facing the fairway, you're facing Eastport down the uh, way there. Uh, the old sow is off to starboard. And so is uh, um, the LNG port further down and off to starboard that they proposed. Um, again, a big ship like that is not going to be in any way incapacitated. But let's imagine, uh, which has happened recently, um uh, LNG ship lose its propulsion. I believe that just happened down in Massachusetts. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard about that, but, I mean, anything mechanical's at risk, isn't it? <laughs> you would think so. Yeah. And again, uh, really, really cool um, uh, natural feature, the power of the water, and it's too bad we couldn't harness that, you know, and, and get that to derive some rotors and spin some stuff. Sure, sure, yeah. I, I've got to get up there and take a look at it sometime. Yeah. And again, current, um, tidal current is a really impressive thing. What's the, uh, oh, I'm blanking on it, the, uh, the race off of the east end of Long Island where uh, Long Island comes up and sort of squeezes in by Connecticut there as a little funnel. Yeah. And uh, was bringing a, uh, what was a little Morris 42-day sailor we were bringing back from Greenwich, Connecticut last uh, summer, and went through the race at night with uh, just a little bit of uh, uh, moonlight and starlight, and it was the weirdest thing. Um, the current is uh, uh, Royals the Water. You know, and this was sort of oily smooth on top, but you could see that there was something happening right under it. Mm-hmm. And it was all inky kind of uh, milky and, and the, just really a very little light. And it just, it really stunned me. It was, it was something else. And uh, just the light and, like I say, the, um, the energy that was inherent in that water, you could just tell. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was, um, I got to ride through Woods Hole a couple of times. Uh, on an old Bristol with a fella, and, and uh, it was, um, you know, a 34-foot sailboat. I think it was 34 or whatever. But anyway, yeah, it was kind of a, it was a good thing we were going with the current because you could tell the, the, the boys were just laying over flat in it, you know. It was pretty impressive. And you got to, uh, for instance, going up the St. John River through the Reverse and Falls. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Reverse and Falls here that people kayak on. And uh, same thing, uh, a riptide offshore. You can't fight that current. The way to the way to uh, get with that is to go with the flow until it kind of relaxes and then do your thing. You can't fight the current. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's a lot stronger than you are. And and like I say, the old sow going round and round in circles there is, uh, you know, I've never gone right over there um, because I'd be afraid to go right straight across it. Yes. Yeah, you know, I'm messing with the boss's boat. He's coming in tomorrow. I'm not going over there and taking any chances. So anyway, but I have talked to again my. Uh, Eastport friends, I have a friend who charters a sailboat down there, and it's one of his favorite places to go and, um, you know, show people that it's really not as dangerous as, as you think. But, again, you've got to be very respectful of it. Well, I guess that's true all the time, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, I did have one other kind of thing I was going to ask you if you could remark on a little bit. Um, um, I've only heard your show a few times, and you've probably already discussed this. And, but um, speaking of Morris, I understand that Mr. Morris recently passed away and and I was wondering if you had any you know um, any thoughts about the future of, of of the you know the company. I I guess his son runs it or has been running it or something. They were just in the news last week. Launched a brand new boat. Yep. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I, I know I've known Tom for many years now. He was a, a fine man, and 
He will be missed, and his son, Kyler, has taken over the business, you're right, and they are producing quite a few of their, uh, what they call the, the M series, their um, day sailors that range now from 29 feet to 54 feet. You can imagine that. Day sailors. Day sailors. Day sailors, yes. Well, the 29 one is the one that's getting a lot of uh, a lot of press right now because it's making its debut at the Miami Boat Show as we speak. Oh, okay. And um, there are literally hundreds of requests for people who uh, have to qualify to even be able to take a demonstration sail on this little boat. So okay. there's, there's much interest there. And... Um, any interest right now in the boating business is good. Uh, I was just going to say, that's wonderful to hear because things are um, pretty tough right now. Yeah, these these uh, new little boats have been a real marketing uh, uh, triumph, I think. Sort of like the Hinkley Jet Boats, okay? They come out and then everybody's got to have one. They're really cool looking. They're easy to operate, you know, uh, very operator friendly. Yeah. And uh, I've uh, delivered a couple of them and they just go slick as can be. I like them just because they're so clean. All the lines are led below deck rather than on dock top of deck. So it's a very nice, neat looking boat. Yeah. And a quality product, too, I understand. Right? Yeah. And very easy to, uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, I've said this before on Boat Talk, the, the part of the genius of them is they hit a lot of the ropes. I'm not supposed to call them ropes, but <laughs> I get to, I know I get to pull on them, so I can. Uh, a lot of the uh, all the lines are led aft back to the to the uh, uh, steering area, and a lot of them run under the deck, and uh, so it's not all a clutter of lines and very nicely organized, so that uh, you know, uh, let's say one power winch will uh, handle several different tasks with with some. Uh, uh, jam cleats to uh you know stop the lines when they're not being used right. and very operator friendly and it also looks simple which is kind of reassuring too and man don't they go nicely so this is more just like folks which probably more most people do right just go out and spend an afternoon bumping around the the bay or something and then yeah these people we uh uh ended up in greenwich connecticut bringing this boat back and we we uh uh, got met at the train station and, and went to their waterfront estate. Uh, wow. And there are some waterfront estate, estates in Greenwich, Connecticut. We were very, very impressed. And the fellow was out on the lawn. Um, I thought he was the groundskeeper. He was uh, He's troubled by geese uh, pooping on his lawn, and that's what he was taking care of when we came. And his wife did all the running about. They have a little uh, dock there. They had a, a, a big powerboat on there with a uh, Donzi jet boat for a tender. Yeah, for a tent, for the big uh, power boat, they had a little sailboat there. They had a, a, a Hobie Cat. They had a couple Boston Whalers out in the harbor. They had uh, uh, the Morris uh, Day Sailor and another sailboat. And by far, they were claiming the uh, Morris was getting all the use. Huh. Yeah. Huh. And you just go out there, you undo the sail cover and, and pull a couple things, and you're gone. So do you think that'll supplant their, their regular... Um they're, you know, the regular, I don't know what you call them, but the boats. The offshore ships. Yeah, right. Yeah, the other yeah well, ain't it like being in Maine in the first place, Jim? It's good to have your finger in a lot of pies, you know? Yeah, of yeah. course. And so they started off with a 36-footer, and then they came out with, what, a 42, and then a 54, and now the 29, which uh, goes in sailway condition. Um, you want to check your balance this morning, Jim, $185,000. Sailway, uh, you know, with lines to tie it up and life jackets. I'm not even sure if that includes sales. Might not include yeah. sales, yes. But the life jackets are there. Life jackets yeah. and the lines yeah. tied to the dock and the fenders. One paddle. Yeah, um, $185,000. And again, a uh, sleek-looking thing, which is trailerable. In the uh, article in the Ellsworth American by Steve Rappaport, they made, he made a really interesting point that they made some uh, interesting trade-offs. For instance, carbon fiber rig, uh, the mast is very light compared to an aluminum one. It's also very expensive compared to an aluminum one. And uh, it has a special uh, uh, backstay rig that is a high-tech uh, synthetic, apparently, uh, you know, fiber. Kevlar rope or something. Yeah, Kevlar rope Kevlar, or something yeah. for, for bending the backstay. Uh, again, expensive, but why make special uh, rigging for the, the stays that, you know, go to the side decks? Don't need them. Let's have those just be regular. Huh. You know, so different trade-offs to try to, they were fierce about getting the weight down, and they wanted that thing to be sporty, and apparently it uh, met its expectations on sea trials, uh, very cold sea trials in January, 
again, it's a Miami boat show right now. And Kyler Morris, also in the uh, Ellsworth American, there was saying, well, things are kind of slow now, but we're used to that in the boat business. It goes in cycles, and when it comes back, it comes back gangbusters, and we're going to be ready, he says. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, a quality product, and the company's going to get through. And and then again with, you know, with Mr. Ky- uh, Mr. My- Morris, um, you know, passing away and stuff. I'm Tom sure. Tom was a good fellow. It was uh went to his uh, uh service at the boatyard there and it was standing room only and they had a slideshow, a lot of smiling pictures of Tom through his life, a lot of sailing pictures and I tell you what, Jim makes you think more about when anybody's taking your picture where they might end up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well gentlemen, thank you so very much. I appreciate your your thoughts on all this. Thank well, you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, good morning. Uh another boatyard Possible news, too. I told you right before the show that I talked with the folks down at Brooklyn Boatyard because I'd heard the rumor from Skip Strong that they were going to be making a, a J-boat. Now, a J-boat is quite a large boat. They're like 110, 120 feet. So we're not talking the Rod Johnston uh, J-boat series. We're talking the no, classic J-boat the yachts, classic, which were yes. America's Cup-type boats back right. at the turn of the century. With huge, huge sails. and Big, big, big classic, classic booms. long, lean yeah. yachts, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I talked with those folks down there, and they said it was actually just really a rumor at this stage right now. Sparkman's and Stevens had um, had a, some interest in making a new contemporary J-boat, and so they just contacted Brooklyn Boatyard, just sort of in a theoretical level, to say, you know, if we come up with a, somebody who wants one of these things, and, um, are you capable of building it? And of course, the answer there is yes, and then my comment to them, too, is there are not very many boatyards in the world that can say yes to making a J-boat. That's true. That is very true. We talked to, of course, uh, Bob Stevens and, and Paul Waring last month uh, from the yep. design office at the Brooklyn Boatyard, now incorporated as Stephen Waring's in White, a new design office, which will uh, lend its talents to more projects than will just happen at the Brooklyn Boatyard, um, which was kind of cool. Um, was thinking when Jim was calling there, had one of the, you know, there's a few sales you'll kind of always remember. Oh, sure. You know, uh, out of all the times you ever spent yeah, sailing. Some a, of them were terrible and some of them were great. That's, that's right. And this, this one had actually both of those aspects at moments, but, uh, we were coming back and, uh, I forget if it was the, delivered a couple of those Morris Day sailors last uh, summer. It might've been the 36, might've been the 42, but it was one of them anyway. Well, you can tell the difference because I, my big gripe about the 36 is you can't stand up down below. Can't stand up down below the 36, uh, um, or was it the 42? It had no stove. And uh, we brought lasagna, which we triple wrapped in, in uh, foil and then laid it on the engine manifold, you know, and got mm-hmm. it pleasantly warm, made a, made a salad and had a very elegant dinner, uh, hot, you know, warm dinner anyway. So you can, it's all camping, isn't it, you know, and some of it's uh, just not as hard camping as, as some others. So, yeah. But anyway, we were coming back and we were... Um, um, coming in back to Bass Harbor and uh, arriving as just seems to happen in, in the dark, in the middle of the night. And one of my things is I don't think it's real smart to go sailing around the coast of Maine in the dark because um, of all the lobster buoys. In the daytime, you would dodge something. In the nighttime, you mm-hmm. can't. There's not a, not a lot of lit buoys around here either. No, and that makes uh, just uh, the idea of, of tangling up with a trap kind of a crapshoot. And, again, the underbody of the Morris Day Sailor would be good to get get caught on things. You know, it's got a fin keel and a little uh, a a propeller hanging out and the spade rudder. And there's a couple, couple right, ways you get caught That's right, they have a sail drive, don't they? Yes. Yeah, and I um, tend to be the fellow that ends up in the water taking care of these things. And so I was like, you know, we just can't go running running the engine back into Bass Harbor. So what we did was we sailed into Bass Harbor in the night with some moon, and uh, it was a downwind romp. We jibed our way down uh, around uh, uh, Long Island, um, Frenchboro, mm. and came down the slot there towards, uh, you know, the big island, and just jibing back and forth and across Bass Harbor Bar and rounded up into the harbor. And... Uh, left the sail stuffing until a little bit late in the harbor and had kind of a kerfuffle when the thing didn't come down right away and yeah, had a little adventure in the dark there. But the whole idea was if we weren't turning the propeller with the engine running, we'd be a lot less likely to get, get right. snagged up on something. And we come screaming down in there, and, and those little Morris days there was like kind of a sports car. 
ideas as far as uh, you know driving them goes. And wow, I don't remember that one for a long time. Yeah, and get paid to do it too on a good day. So anyway, we are doing boat talk this morning, and uh, again we didn't overschedule. Any guests, we might have talked to the uh, captain of the boat this morning, but uh, on the other hand, we'd be glad to talk to you. All you got to do is give us a call. one 625 9378 Here's another uh, interesting story. Some stranded boaters rescued from an island off of uh, Naskeg Point down in Brooklyn. Uh, a couple boys from Prospect and Stockton Springs were out. They were going clamming on White Island in a 15-foot open boat, three of them. And the boat previously had been repaired and started leaking, uh, re-leaking in the bow area. They realized that they, uh, you know, were not going to be able to make it back to shore, so they went to the island, broke into a camp, called the Coast Guard. Uh, they had a propane heater with them. Uh, a lot of, um, a lot of uh, divers, for instance, so rig up, uh, you know, a, pro- a propane heater uh, with a portable tank on the boat. And uh, I guess these guys are doing a similar thing. Uh, I don't think they were heating the open space there, but, you know, give them something to snuggle up against. And they were extraordinarily well-dressed for the conditions. Nobody was hurt. Nobody got in any trouble. The Coast Guard uh, came, got them, and towed them back. But suggested that in the future, uh, we definitely advise them to make sure their boat is in better shape before they take it back out, said the Coast Guard spokesman. You know, and uh, those guys are out there working. They're trying to make a living, uh, clamming, um, you know, in January. And it's not a time to fool around. And, again, they were well-dressed, and, and they did all the right things. But, uh, you know, things can easily. Still, you know, like you say, building a boat is not all that simple, and maintaining it is something you need to keep up on, too. Yeah, and uh, let's say uh, I'm imagining, I don't know this, I'm imagining it was an aluminum boat. You know, we've uh, tackled that boat talk question before. How do you patch a leak in an aluminum boat? Yeah. That's kind of a problem. So anyway, uh, maybe they did a good job, maybe they didn't. But uh, like I say, the boys out there uh, trying to make a living, sort of like the uh, periwinkle harvester that got drowned off of Eastport. Right. Uh, no, off of Lubeck uh, uh, a couple months back, you know, on a rising tide at 1030 at night out with a flashlight trying to pick up periwinkles and make some money. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. So while well, we're on the topic of Coast Guard too, I happened to read in the, the uh, magazine that we can't mention the one that rhymes with. The one you didn't mention, yep. but I did. No, so I, anyway. I, I, I thought maybe you slipped that in there. But anyway, fine magazine. Um, they um, Peter Bass points out in a little uh, one of his back porch articles that the Coast Guard has now changed the weight of the average person that they used for, de- for determining their uh, capacities. We used to be uh, Americans were 160 pounds, just generic Americans. Now we all weigh 185 pounds, according to the Coast Guard, for their standard. Yep. Um, just I don't know. <laughs> bending to the obvious, uh, I believe. Well, probably, yeah. It's, although we're not really in the fat times right now, it's uh, true that there are probably a lot of people that are above that that rating that will We're the fattest people bring. on earth. Two-thirds of us are overweight, and uh, the nearest people to us are the Brits, only 60% of them. Only 49% of Canadians are overweight, apparently, and, uh, uh, yeah, we're world leaders. So if you want a boat that can hold more capacity, get one that's built in a skinny country. Well, or, um, you know, you could also uh, think of, of the effect of the modern American uh, processed food diet on life jacket uh, usage, you know. <laughs> that's probably true, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody who we mean to talk to at some point is, uh, I believe it's John McMillan, McMillan uh, Survival Training, our friend uh, Steve Callahan. Oh, yeah. Uh, Steve wrote Adrift. Uh, he survived uh, 76 days uh, adrift in a life raft uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, basically. Uh, he called and suggested that we talk to uh, Mr. McMillan there, and we will get to that. do have an interesting article about the uh, Coast Guard here, and this comes from what's uh, really a political magazine called the Washington Monthly. Article's called Sunk Costs. Why, after $24 billion in upgrade, the Coast Guard still deploys a fleet of rust buckets. And uh, this is not a very pretty story. And it involves our tax dollars and, uh, you know, really our Coast Guard as well. Um, Here's a paragraph that kind of sums the thing up. Um, In the feverish aftermath 
of 9-11 with the Bush administration eager to turn all government departments into outposts of the war on terror, the humble Coast Guard attempted a far more ambitious transformation, a $24 billion scheme to transform its boats into an integrated fleet boasting heavy weaponry, futuristic communication systems, and so on. When the uh, agency leapt at the opportunity to get its hands on an expanded budget and high-tech ships, however, it failed to put in place the necessary tools to make sure that such massive contracts would actually deliver what the government ordered. The result has been six years of incompetence and alleged fraud by private contractors and billions of dollars of squandered taxpayers' money, much of it wasted on flawed boats that have since been scrapped. The Coast Guard, meanwhile, is still attempting to play a growing military role with ships that are old, unreliable, and a hazard to their crews. They describe in here an um, old Coast Guard cutter they sent over to um, uh, oh, uh, the Ukraine when they just had uh, Georgia, when they had that little recent uh, scuffle with the, with the Russians. They had several fires on the way over in the engine room. Now, in the Navy, if your boat catches on fire, uh, as a captain, you're, you've got a big problem, um, career problem. And the Coast Guard... They got you on fire all the time, apparently, and the, co- and the captain makes jokes about it. Oh, boy. And mm. what's happened here Making is, again, nervous. the uh, <laughs> Coast Guard tried to ramp up a large acquisition um, uh, program without having any acquisition officers. They had no idea how to spend the money. Um, acqu- acquisition officers in the 90s had been sort of laid off in budget cutting measures, and uh, they were understaffed in that area, and the Coast Guard literally has uh, no expertise in it. So what they end up with is a a scheme called lead system integrators, and these are private companies that become the main contractors, the general contractors on the job, and they not only um, basically handle the specifications, they decide who gets to do the jobs. They get to subcontract. On the uh, Coast Guard jobs, it is Lockheed and Northrop. And not surprisingly, Northrop decides that their shipyard will build the hulls, and Lockheed decides that their people will supply the electronics. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been kind of a disaster. Um, In particular, they took eight, and we're talking about the United States Coast Guard now, they took eight 110-foot patrol vessels, and they needed something bigger with better communication, so... Here's a good idea. Let's cut them in half and stretch them. Now, this is, a, this is an interesting boatyard move. You can do it with your lobster boat or, or anything. Um, cut it and uh, make another cut part. It, cut it in the middle and add cut a, it in the middle and, middle section that stretches yeah, out the ends. Yeah, and glass it back in and off you go or weld it back in. So anyway, they did this to these uh, 110 footers, made them 123 feet. Um, the uh, one of the people on the project kept crying uh, wolf to the government. You know, this is all wrong. This is all wrong, and and uh, he got ignored, and then he got fired, and he finally put a video up on YouTube. Is how this came to light. Whatever happened to the whistleblower's protection? Well, he was he was fired by the time uh, you know he put the thing up on YouTube. It turns out that he was right, and. Uh, these boats, uh, the decks have cracked. One boat was uh, uh, involved in a rescue off of Alaska and developed a two-foot crack and had to retire. Uh, the electronics don't work. Um, they're not all marine. Uh, you know, they're jammed into too big of a spa- too small of a space. And this is just with the, uh, again, 123-footers. They are also, excuse me, <coughs> they're also trying to make some big ships, the deep water program, where they would get frigate-size Coast Guard cutters and heavily armed, too, much more heavily armed than Coast Guard cutters have ever been, with all the uh, gigaws that will allow them to integrate with the Navy, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and, you know, get, get, with, the, uh, get with the big boys. Well, um, apparently Northrop and, uh, Northrop and Lockheed, uh, you know, are, are ramrodding this project, and, again, the, the uh, waste has been considerable. They delivered the first one, finally, um, just last year, a uh, year and a half late. Uh, the original budget was $300 million, ended up costing 640 It's still not right. And uh, they say, well, we've uh, redone the program here and, and uh, found some of the uh, problems. 
But uh, And we've turned the corner, but we still cannot project any future costs, is what the Coast Guard was saying. At the same time, 25% of this deep water budget was involved with uh, maintenance of old Coast Guard vessels because they still got to be out there and literally have a rusty um, kind of moldering kind of fleet. No ifs, ands, and buts. Coast Guard uh, of the United States has the third oldest fleet in the world of Coast Guard uh, vessels, and we are behind, I believe, uh, Venezuela and uh, the Philippines and Mexico are the only uh, only uh, countries that have Coast Guards with, with older vessels than the United States of America. So, anyway, good news for the Coast Guard, huh? Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, who knows what's going to come of that, but it's comforting to think that they are out there. I've been rescued by the Coast Guard one time. I haven't been rescued, but I was pulled over. <laughs> yep. That, you know, they're, they're patrolling the waters, and that's, that's what they're supposed to do. Uh, but on the other side of the Coast Guard new boat issue is um, I happen to know that Morris is one of the four finalists in a uh, bids to make a series of, I forget the number, I think it's 15 38-foot sailboats for the Coast Guard. For the Coast Guard Academy. For the Coast Guard Academy, yeah. yes. And guys. as I said, we got to be all in favor of that. We're sailboat, you know, builders and yacht people. So. Well, you know, we go back to the uh, the old uh, having uh, cookie sales to uh, fund education and the government getting all that it wants to you know, thirty-eight. I mean, a dozen thirty-eight footers is going to be a fair amount of change. Now, that's what do those Coast Guard people learn on those boats, though? Well, I would say quite a lot. I bet you, yeah, a lot of them, a lot of people who uh, enlist in the Coast Guard really haven't been offshore, know that really much about what it's like to be out there, and it but, would be good experience for sure. A few years back, I was trying to do some research on uh, overboard discharge uh, regulations, you know, which are becoming more stringent all the time. So I went to the local Coast Guard station, chatted them up. They couldn't even uh, photocopy anything for me on the regulations. Um, it was it was kind of bizarre little, um, like, say, mm-hmm. I tried to ask the Coast Guard, so we, we don't know. Yeah. But I met a couple of Coasties, and, and I used to uh, have all these little... Uh, uh, occasions to move the boat around, you know, and sometimes I'd need just a person basically to, you know, catch and throw a line sort of thing and, and uh, you know, just ride along. So I took a, uh, a young Coast Guard lady from, uh, I believe she was from Texas, and she was, uh, um, she'd never been on a, a sailboat like that before. Her only boating experience was ever in the Coast Guard, and uh, she was freaked out that I walked down to the boat without a life jacket on and that I was about to untie the boat without lines of position and courses all laid in and stuff. And we're in some sound. I says, we're just going to kind of head down that way, stand between the mountains. We'll be fine. And, uh, again, totally freaked out by my nonchalance of, uh, you know, she all suited up and she wanted to look at the chart and lay in some courses and stuff. So I let her, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no problem. But again, her uh, safety-oriented attitude was—it uh, was kind of—it was kind of neat to me too. Because well, yeah. we can be kind of casual sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Still a couple minutes left in boat talk here. We one, one of the interesting specs I heard on. Um, well, I was talking to a person at Pearson Yachts a few years back, and they were doing the same thing, making sailing boats for the Navy Academy. And he said one of their prime uh, specifications for these boats was that they had to be able to be cleaned out down below with a fire hose. Good so stuff. That, that, that would sort of tell you maybe what, what these training experiences are like. Well, we don't, yeah, we don't need to uh, put them up in paw shots. But again, what, what are they learning on these sailboats? The, I think the smaller the boat, the better the feedback loop. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, you can get, right, you know, when you're on a big boat, you can get a little bit nonchalant, as you say, about, about the conditions. But when you're getting beat up, going down 20-foot waves on a 40-foot boat, you're, yeah, you get some real respect for out, being out there. Yeah, and uh, teamwork, I believe, uh, you know, just the the feel for the ocean, being that much closer to it, um, seamanship, you know, the smaller the boat, the, the, the more you have to behave and stuff. And uh, so I think that sail training in, in uh, small yachts for Coast Guard and Navy people, I think that's excellent. You know, on the other hand, uh, you know, can we afford to send those people out yachting? Right. Yeah. And cut back education at the same time. 
And uh, we won't end, uh, even get into, uh, you know, the flow of those dollars, for instance, those people saying, well, uh, we're not buying that jet with the bailout money. That's different money, you know. So mm-hmm. anyway, uh, not airplane talk here or bailout yeah. talk or anything. We're getting off course. but Yes, yeah. we could. But anyway, uh, yeah, we are doing boat talk this morning. And again, we didn't overschedule any guests, and we still got a couple minutes to talk to you. one 625 Nine three seven eight. Another thing that we're always interested in is um, what interests you and the boating uh, world. We got. I've got a. Um, boy, I can think of all all kinds of people we need to talk to. I just uh, read a just totally remarkable book by a fellow named James Nelson. He's a main author. Oh yes, he was yeah. in uh, Working Waterfront a couple of months ago. I yeah. He writes a series of historical novels, uh, one, one line set in the Revolution, another, I think, set in the Civil War. Um, they all come with the blurb on the cover, the heir to Patrick O'Brien, which I, nope, sorry, I don't think so. Hmm. But anyway, uh, good job, you know, fine, I've read a couple of those. Those are all right. Um, I'm not, not a, a huge fan, but I've read a few of them. And uh, he wrote a, a, a history book called Benedict Arnold's Navy. Now, Benedict Arnold is one of my heroes. Oh, yes, you've given this story before. Yeah, yes. uh, again, he, uh, you know, left Boston, went up the Kennebec River and attacked Quebec, uh, unsuccessfully retreated back down through Montreal um, and down the uh, St. John uh, Champlain uh, Valley there into Vermont and uh, fought a battle with the British on Lake Champlain that delayed him for a year, and then the Americans uh, won at Saratoga, the first big victory in the Revolution, and, you know, that was all Benedict Arnold. So this book that James Nelson wrote was Benedict Arnold's Navy, which was an account of Benedict Arnold's whole arc from, from Maine um, up to the Battle of Saratoga and, uh, you know, how he ended up in the postscript and everything. Didn't end well. Benedict was a very proud fellow who just got completely pissed off working with the people around him and, and lost faith in the American cause, um, you know, because of all the stupidity that that he just couldn't stand, and a totally able fellow. But anyway, the thing that James Nelson did so well was put you in the place at the time and show you what it looked like. Really sets the scene extraordinarily well. And um, there are illustrations of the Battle of Valcour Island itself that mm. show you what, the, you know, what these row galleys and gondolas looked like. Um, you know, and... Uh, the thing that really impressed me was his account of the beginning of the revolution. You cannot overestimate the amount of confusion. And all worked out perfectly, and in hindsight, <laughs> it looks kind of easy, doesn't it? But the confusion can't be underestimated. And into that come people uh, you know, of ability and ambition, like Ethan Allen and uh, uh, Benedict Arnold, and uh, you know, all Gates and Schuyler and all the, you know, all the American... Uh, uh, cast characters there, and and again, uh, let's imagine when, when uh, the British were holed up in Boston, and the Patriots just flocked to Boston and surrounded the city. Who was in charge of that? It wasn't the Massachusetts legislature? They were appalled. They didn't want to pay for any of it. They didn't want to feed those people. They didn't be responsible. Mm-hmm. It just sort of happened, hmm. and it kind of evolved. And again, the confusion can't be underestimated. Love to talk to James Nelson and get the story of uh, basically how Benedict Arnold. Well, made we'll it possible for us to be America. Yeah, that's that's a uh, just one thing on tap. What do you got? In front I have of here? A, um, an announcement of a uh, a talk that's going to be happening just this evening at six thirty in Belfast at the Belfast Free Library. Uh, it's a talk with uh, Captains Rick and Karen Miles. They are the owner operators of the Wanderbird, which is um, a renovated ninety foot Dutch fishing fishing vessel that um, they've. Uh, outfitted for passengers, and they now go up the main, uh, the main coast to Nova Scotia and even Labrador. And this this captain this presentation this evening is going to be uh, with pictures and and stories and all kinds of accounts from their travels up and down, or mostly up the coast from here. Where is it at, and what's this, the contact? This is uh, at the Belfast Free Library, six thirty this evening. Uh, it's a free, open to the public program. I don't have a phone number to call, but. Belfast Library, 6.30 this evening. Should do All it. All right. And the phone was just ringing, but Amy's kind of shaking her yeah. head because they're We're... playing the music in the background, and we just wore the thing out. Now the phone's ringing again. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, Boat Talk is calling show, and 
we kind of yucked it up this morning, but hopefully there was something interesting in there. Yeah, hope you yeah. enjoyed part of it at least. Second Tuesday every month. Uh, what are we going to do next month? We haven't figured it out yet, but oh, we can tell you that clue. Jim Bahoosh is coming up on the wing. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow morning doing the Barefoot Blues Hour. Alan's back Thursday afternoon doing You have some large. suggestions for the show, too. Uh, you can go to boattalk.org, check out our website, and uh, leave some suggestions, too. Yeah, ahoy, see ya. Boat Talk is made possible in part by the Red Fern Boat Company of Hancock County. Since 1982, offering maintenance, storage, and restoration for power boats and sailboats. Also offering dockage on Mount Desert Island. Redfernboat.com Tune in to WERU on Tuesday, February 10th at 4 o'clock for a special edition of